What a perfect time to take the microphone here. Jim got us started here with music from Enigma. Hey, Jim, who are these folks, by the way? Those are David Epp and Carolyn Olson, two local artists. And by local, I mean southeast Nebraska. Uh, they hail from the Syracuse and Tecumseh area. And uh, good friends of mine, in, in uh, uh, full disclosure, but uh, very talented individuals. And uh, that was from their CD? Their fourth CD, entitled Moon. Two tracks called The Stand and The Sound of Her Voice, which uh, The Sound of Her Voice for Barbara Jean. Barbara Jean is Carolyn's mother. The band Enigma, our official music, the ultimate acoustic duo, as they say. Mm -hmm. Great stuff. Thank you, Jim. And how you, how you been? Pretty good. Trying to stay cool. And the reason is because it's... My, uh, my car has some air conditioning issues. Oh, and, I'm sorry uh, to hear that. I think the AC itself is all right. I just have a general cooling system issue. So, so it works when you go fast and the window's <laughs> down, right? <laughs> well, yeah, I have that, that, that 440 air conditioning, four windows open, going down the north street 40 miles an hour. Yep, I asked the UPS and the FedEx drivers that question. I was how's the air conditioning doing? Because their doors are wide open. Oh, yeah. And, uh, oh, but they don't even have air conditioning in those, do they? No. <laughs> yep. I'm Scott Colborn. You're listening to Exploring Unexplained Phenomena. Great program coming up. In just about 30 seconds, we've got Charlene with Pet Talk, Dogs and Cats for Adoption from the Capital Humane Society. Then we hook up with Paula Harris, um, who is live in Boulder, Colorado. And uh, we'll talk about UFOs, ETs, and exopolitics. Our main guest today is my old friend and colleague, Peter Robbins. And uh, all things ufology, all things UFO, all things ET, and then some coming up. It'll be a wide-ranging conversation, I promise you. Uh, Jim and I have got Jack Reacher coffee in our cups, and we're just tickled to be with you. This is Charlene from the Capital Humane Society, and this is Pet Talk. Hi, Charlene. Good morning. It's so great to connect with you. Tell us what your week's been like. What's been going on at the Capital Humane Society? Well, we have had a lot of adoptions, which is great. We Fantastic. have a lot of yeah, it is, and and we have a lot of felines for adoptions. Even though we had lots of adoptions, there's still lots of cats. So if you're looking for a kitten or a cat, we just have wonderful ones that need new homes. So we hope that people will come and check out all the furry felines available for adoption. <laughs> well, let's start with cats and kittens for adoption, okay? Okay, that sounds great. So oh. we have a lot of cute ones. We're going to start with uh, Dwight. <laughs> and Dwight is a very shy fella. He's kind of hanging back there in his picture. Not sure if he wants to come out just yet. He's an orange tabby, about five years old, arrived as a lost pet, and is no fan of wandering the streets. He wants very much to be kept safe in a loving new home. So we hope somebody will swing by and ask about Dwight. Dwight the cat. Yeah, Jim says Dwight the cat. <laughs> Dwight, I like that. Do you guys just take a, a book of names and pick a page at random and close your eyes and point? <laughs> Our office staff has a lot of fun. Sometimes they go on themes, you know, like yeah. Hershey's and mm -hmm. Snickers, and other times, yeah, they're just very creative. Oh, well, that's great. 
Uh, we're looking, at, by the way, folks, just like you can, capitalhumanesociety.org. And we just talked about Dwight. And now we're going to talk about... Jasper. And Jasper is a cute little gray tabby cat, about three years old, a neutered male with short, soft fur. He also arrived as a lost pet. He's very charming and outgoing, so he's uh, different than Dwight. He comes right to the front of the cage and says hello. So he will be a very charming and entertaining friend. Oh, yeah, what a beautiful kitty. Almost looks silver. Uh-huh. That's a famous uh, famous rock or a famous stone. I actually have some guitar picks that a guy over in Iowa makes out of Ocean Jasper, and those are kind of cool. Jasper, our second cat up for adoption. He'd sure like to meet you today. Dwight and Jasper, and then... Next up is Oreo, named for her color. She's white and black. She's also very timid, so she's one that could be hiding when you come by, so you'll want to ask specifically to see her. Uh, she'll appreciate a home that's nice and quiet and calm with kind people. So if you're looking for a shy companion, Oreo may be just perfect for you. She's got that look on her face kind of like you're cutting into my nap time here. Get uh -huh. <laughs> okay, for, for, fans, for fans of The Wizard of Oz, I've just got to do this, okay? Oreo, oh, Oreo, oh, the flying monkeys are marching along and they're singing Oreo. And they're coming for you, Scott. And I always thought they were talking about those famous cookies. I thought, hey, that's pretty good, but I guess not. Oreo, great looking cat and a little timid, uh, but she'd like to meet you today. And Charlene, these great folks listening can do just that today and tomorrow. What are your hours open? Please visit us at the Pylock Pet Adoption Center today and tomorrow. We are open 11 to 530. Charlene, what is in your cup? Are you a coffee or tea drinker? I have some tea, and it is Irish breakfast today. It's pretty dark mm. and very tasty. Mm. Sounds yummy. Now, are you a purist, or do you do it with, like, cream, sugar, honey? Uh, it's just black today. I do like a little milk in it sometimes. Mm-hmm. This is Charlene from the Capital Humane Society. We've talked about cats and for adoption. There's more great cats there. You can see the, the pictures at capitalhumanesociety.org. And now it's time to talk about dogs for adoption. And we do have some great dogs looking for homes. We'll start with Philo. And Philo is actually off-site at Camp Bow Wow. So sometimes we send our animals to different locations. So some of the cats might be at Petco, for example. Uh, so Philo is looking for a new home. He's a lab hound mix, about a year old, a very, very high-energy dog. We can't say that uh, or stress that enough. <laughs> we need people to know he needs a daily run, lots and lots of exercise. But then he'll just be such a charming and loyal friend. Yeah, Camp Bow what a fun place that is. Okay, Philo, you just look at him, and he is ready. He's saying, yes. I think I see a leash in somebody's hand. Uh, it's behind <laughs> your back. I, I see that. He's got his ears up. Boy, he's on full alert. See Philo, P-H-Y-L-O. See his picture at capitalhumanesociety.org. He's joined by... Bonnie. And Bonnie is a very uh, engaging, inquisitive little pit bull, about a year old, a spade female, uh, lots of energy as well, looking for a home with uh, people who like to take her out to the yard and play fetch and go for walks. 
Uh, she does need an experienced owner uh, that understands she is uh, kind of picky about things sometimes. <laughs> so she needs somebody who will properly train her and care for her. And we do have a behavior department that can answer questions if you have any regarding her training. We've got people right now on the uh, Lister map listing from the Czech Republic and from Germany. And so quite, cool? quite literally, with Bonnie being for adoption, they could say, my Bonnie lies over the ocean. <laughs> my Bonnie That's right. over the sea. That, that was a pretty good setup, I'll have to admit. Yeah. Okay, great dog Bonnie pictures up at capitalhumanesociety.org. Philo Bonnie and... Next up is Jack, and Jack has been with us for several months now and is just ready for a great new home. He is a Labrador, about five years old. He's got several pictures up. The one I like the most, though, is where he's looking so proud in his red harness. <laughs> he's sitting, sitting like such a gentleman, and he is very intelligent. So with proper training, with an experienced owner, he is really going to be just a great friend. Boy, he's ready to go, isn't he? Yes. What okay. a great-looking dog. Fence backyard, daily exercise. Uh, children should be 12 years of age or older. Uh, canine, feline-free home. He wants to be your one and only pet, and he is ready. Uh, Jack, be nimble, and you better be quick. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Go take a look at Jack at CapitalHumaneSociety.org. Better yet, you could see Philo, Bonnie, and Jack this morning or tomorrow. What are your hours open? We will be open at our Pylock Pet Adoption Center today and tomorrow from 11 to 5.30. And we are all-inclusive here. We actually have a water bowl here in the studio. Yes, and we, we have do. a KZUM co-host treats <laughs> container up there on the window uh, so that we have programmers that bring pets in here. And so uh, they, uh, they've got water and treats here. Yeah, Scott, oh, that's so nice. Scott keeps wanting me to try out the co-host treats, but I, I, <laughs> I don't think that's what they have in mind for those. No. You're too quick for me, Jim, man. You are just up on things. Well, they don't smell very appetizing, but I imagine they do to dogs. I disguise one on my hand and I say, here, Jim, and he knows immediately where I'm going here. Yeah. See, <laughs> he, he'll eat the donuts, but he won't eat the treats there, so. Well... What can I say? Charlene, thanks so much for being here with us. We hope all of the folks listening that are thinking about pets go out and see you today or tomorrow. We hope so, too. Thank you so much. Charlene and friends at the Capital Humane Society make them the first place you go when you want to adopt a dog or a cat. Next up is our friend Paula Harris. And Paula is live from Boulder, Colorado, one of my favorite cities. Hi, Paula. How are you? I'm doing really well, Scott. How are you? Thank you. Doing great. Are you going to send us some cooler weather? <laughs> yeah, we've had 95 and 94 degree weather for the last three weeks, haven't wow. we? Oh, my goodness. There's a lot of places out there that, because of its, its uh, location in the mountains, don't have air conditioning. So, I mean, wow, that's mm -hmm. just hot. Yeah, it is. It is. We uh, we need a break. It doesn't look like it's coming, though, but it is gorgeous. I can honestly say that we don't have humidity. So for us, it's not as bad as, like, if you were in Florida mm -hmm. <laughs> or someplace like that. We're kind of halfway between. We have humidity, but not as bad as Florida. Yeah. Uh, Paulo, yeah, I, 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 want you, I want you to imagine people listening right now 
that have, they're riding around in their cars, they're at home on their computer, uh, they've dialed up the, uh, the show, and they've heard about UFOs, but they don't know much. Why is this subject important for literally everybody listening? Wow, that's a heavy question there. I have to <laughs> You want to sit down first? Um, well, or? the thing is, it, it, it's, really, it's really important to those that care. Um, the, it is a fact. We have enough data to prove it. We don't need the New York Times article to tell us that we have visitations of, from other places on the cosmos. Um, you need to go back to the ancient alien philosophy. People that read The Chariot of the Gods by Eric Van Dunnigan uh, know that uh, these visitors have visited the planet and left uh, marks, left all kinds of, of uh, artifacts and all kinds of petroglyphs, all kinds of um, proof that we were have been visited. The modern-day visitation started after the atomic bomb explosion, 1945. We just finished with the Roswell Festival in Roswell, New Mexico. Mm -hmm. What people need to know is because of the timing of the Roswell crash, the 1945 crash, and other uh, real factual events, uh, that there is a group of uh, our neighbors out there that are very interested in our nuclear capabilities and, uh, and our ability to destroy ourselves and to, um, you know, wage war upon ourselves with the nuclear situation. And that, that from all of my 30 to 35 years of research, is the conclusion I've come to, if somebody's worried about our blowing ourselves up and somebody is watching, and most of the sightings and most of the interviews I've done with the military deal uh, around nuclear power uh, facilities, and in the case of Maelstrom Air Force Base missiles that have nuclear warheads that are pointed towards Russia or another country, that happened in 1969, if they're worried about it, I think we may be worried about it, too. Mm -hmm. This is Paula Harris. Paula hosts the annual event in November called the Starworks USA UFO Symposium. She's a published journalist. She travels all over the world. And uh, I have admired Paula for so many years. She got her start with the late and great Dr. J. Allen Hynek. And uh, she's the researcher that when other people uh, sit at home behind a computer... She jumps in the car, gets on the airplane, and she goes to that place. She talks with the eyewitnesses, and uh, she gets her information uh, that way. And you've uncovered some incredible cases. I'm thinking of one in particular uh, from Sicily, where you've gone uh, several times and talked to people about the skeletons that were unearthed there that were in excess of eight feet in length. Oh, yeah, they're 15 feet, actually. They're the giants. Uh, and people that do the stories on the giants know that uh, on the Earth, at, at, a, uh, at, at some given point, there were giants that came. And, and the people in Sicily in particular uh, told us that they thought they came from the stars, which means they're an extraterrestrial population that's extremely tall. And um, so when I went to Sicily to study this, but I didn't study it 
on purpose. What I went to do is a UFO conference, and then these people out of nowhere came and told me that they had these bones on their farm. Mm-hmm. And one in particular, Luigi Muscas, who's published several books, said that that uh, there are entire skeletons, uh, 15-foot-tall people, and they are in the back room of the Smithsonian. So he's in his book, he's got an actual picture of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and then he brought me this huge tooth, and this is what's on uh, Internet. Um, ancient aliens actually contacted me because they wanted to do some stories in, in, in Sardinia. Sardinia is, is an island next to Sicily, and, and, and no, hardly anybody goes there. So when they say that there's undiscovered territory, there really is. You could do all kinds of research, um, not of the regular kind, if you wanted to go there. So I held this huge tooth. It was a human tooth. It was not an animal tooth. And I saw the bow, uh, a femur and another leg bone from a giant. And, 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 and the um, irony is that they're willing to do DNA testing on this. So, uh, you know, there's so much to be discovered. And whether it be people that are very, very tall or little uh, beings, uh, we have been visited by all types of extraterrestrials. I mean, there's actual proof and data. Mm-hmm. One of the things, Paula, that, that you've been talking about for the last several years that I think is so important is that in the 1980s uh, to present, the uh, mainstream media and people in general have been fixated on a four-foot-tall gray uh, alien, and they're actually called the Greys. And they, they totally forget about the reports from the 1950s and 60s and even some reports today of uh, people that look very similar to us that could easily walk down our streets that are actually ETs. Yeah, well, it's, I think, a brainwashing done by the people that manage the story to put people in fear of abductions. Mm-hmm. And, these, uh, and Colonel Corso call them, and my latest book is Conversations with Colonel Corso. Colonel Corso worked at the Pentagon. He actually worked on the back engineering of some of the Roswell artifacts, but he saw the autopsies, and actually there's a report in the book, Conversations with Colonel Corso, um, that I just wrote about these beings that are created in the laboratory, the little clones. They're, they're beings that fly the ship. They are not autonomous. And so the whoever manages this subject matter loves to make that, and that's why we have all the cartoons and everything, as the uh, the actual you know uh, symbol for ufology is ridiculous. In the fifties and sixties, we had people visiting us. In Latin America, there there were uh, young people that saw uh, space people coming off ships. Physically, I've interviewed them. They were always in a group, so everybody was telling the truth. It wasn't just one person. The Latin American research that I'm doing right now is the most relevant because when they have sightings of these space people, there's more than one person. There's like five to seven people that see them and interact with them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Paula, uh, for, again, for the people that are listening for the first time and or folks that have just maybe out of curiosity heard about UFOs, could they literally go outside and spend time and look up and see one? 
Oh yeah, if you have night screening um, uh, night screening equipment, it's easier because then you can see them very clearly. Um, I've been on expeditions with Dr. Stephen Greer of CSETI. I've been with Ricardo Gonzalez in Spain, in Chile, in Shasta, and we've seen them. Uh, if you have night screening, you look up, and what's zigzagging in the sky is not a satellite. It is not the space station. It is not a plane. It is a craft that can go faster than the speed of light, and you can see it in um, in the night screening, uh, you know, uh, you know, a monitor because it's different from stars. Mm-hmm. And what people need to do if they want to see these things is go to a place where it has no light pollution. And in Colorado, we have so many, like Crestone and Durango and places in southern Colorado. In Nebraska, you can find them. Mm-hmm. But you have to sit there, and you have to wait, and you have to, in a way, there's a protocol of in- invitation uh, where if you mentally invite them to be in your presence, you will see them. Mm-hmm. Um, this is Paula Harris, P-A-O-L-A, Paula Harris. Her website is the first and last name, Paula Harris, P-A-O-L-A, Harris.com. And she's also the MC and organizer for the November Laughlin, Nevada, Starworks USA UFO Symposium. So if we've gotten anybody interested in the audience, this would be a great event to consider. Well, one of the things, Paula, that again, I, I so admire about you is that you don't have the same old speakers that appear on uh, the TV and or speak at the other conferences. Uh, some of those have the same people for, you know, eight or ten years in a row. You've got people from all over the world, uh, women and men, and they've all got something important to say. That's true, and we're very honored to have you there every year, Scott, because we need we need legitimate, serious reporting on this. And you do that. You have a background. You have a long background. So when you come, you really can uh, see the newest, the latest. And we're so lucky to have Emery Smith now. Uh, for people who watch Gaia TV, Emery Smith is an insider who worked in underground bases doing autopsies on alien tissue, on tissue from alien bodies and so forth, and he's biomedical, and he will tell about his experiences, and also he was working with Dr. Greer for some time, so they were also, you know, doing the contact work. Um, We're very lucky to have him, but then I have Steve Mirror from the United Kingdom. I've been just talking about the Latin Americans. We have Ricardo Gonzalez from Argentina coming back talk about contact with um, Antarel, who's the tall, blonde, Nordic-type being. And we have, uh, we have Grant Cameron, who's the best of the best, talking about consciousness. Why my conference is different is because it's got a theme, and it's consciousness-raising. In other words, this is all the data. This is all we have all these years. You get the real stuff. But then where, where do you want to uh, interact with this? What do you want to do? Do you want to be part of it? Do you want to, uh, you know, reach out? It's consciousness raising, and that that is the next step to any kind of research. Mm-hmm. For more information, go to starworksusa.com, and you're going to get the, the, all the information of the conference there. 
So I hope to see a lot of you folks out there. As Paula said, I go out every year. Uh, it's the place to be, and uh, I'm honored to, to rub shoulders. You may have to look at my Facebook picture, Paula, before you see me out there. I Because I've, I've shaved <laughs> off most of my hair, so I'm going to look a little bit different. Well, did you do Is that temporary, or is that... And are you going to be like that in November? I'm going to be like that in November. I will wear a hat if you want me to, so people, you know, aren't no, reflected by that that, that, no. uh, that uh, <laughs> top of my head, you know, and the light shining off there. But no, it's 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 really fun. People tell me that it, uh, I actually look more handsome. We call I think you do too. We it, call it's, him, uh, uh, you know, we need to we need to have a change, Scott. <laughs> we need to. Ch- it's fun to change change up the act, you know. We so call him cue ball cardboard now. <laughs> it's yeah. fun. It, it, I think it's fun to, to change things. It is. So remember that the color is green. I know that's going to put you in, in difficulty, but everybody, uh, it, because it's uh, the return of the star people, Native American, you know, it's about the Native American ancestors, and we're going to have flute playing and Native Americans visiting. Uh, we have to have ecological color, and you know that Saturday night everybody dresses in the same color, and it's great. Okay, so I'm going to look locate a, a green Hawaiian shirt, and I will see you there, my friend. Thank you so much for being with us. <laughs> okay. All right, you take care. Okay, Paula, and you take care out there in Boulder, and I hope you guys uh, get some respite from that high heat out there. Paula Harris, our good friend, accomplished journalist, the author of many, many books, always a good place to start when you want to try to understand this phenomena, uh, live from uh, Boulder, Colorado. So, uh, Jim and Colleen, we've got good donuts out there. We do. We've got uh, hot coffee. Mm-hmm. We've got stimulating conversation. And I'm going to go ahead and take a break now, and we'll be back with more with our main guest, Peter Robbins. We have just started. We've got a lot more great show today. Don't touch that dial. Maybe a couple more donuts worth of show, huh? Sure. I'll be happy to oblige. I'm Scott Colborn with Jim and Colleen. It's really great to have you listening. Thank you so much for lending us your ears for weeks, months, years. I imagine there's probably a few of you people that have actually been listening almost every Saturday since 1984. We're the world's longest-running paranormal talk radio program We know you're out there, and we appreciate you very much. Stay tuned for more now after this break with our main guest, Peter Robbins, right after this. Voice of the Blues in Lincoln, Nebraska, KZUM Lincoln and KZUM HD. Support for KZUM comes from the Nebraska Recycling Council, helping to protect the natural environment and extend the life of our landfill, reminding Lincoln and Lancaster County that corrugated cardboard will not be accepted at the landfill. For more on recycling services and area drop-off sites, nrcne.org or 402 436 2384. This program is made possible in part by a grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. 
KZUM and How's It Growing present the next event in our Garden Walks and Nature Talks series, a local farm tour on Saturday, July 21st from 10 a.m. to noon. Join us as we visit three area farms and meet the innovative food and flower growers found at the farmer's markets every week. We'll stop at Grow With The Flow, Spiritus Vitae Botanicals, and Broccoli Pharmaceuticals, with lunch included. The tour is free, but pre-registration is requested. Find out more and register at kzum.org. My name is Manny Morales. I'm 45 and I coach youth football. It's still hard to believe because the high school me was a work in progress. But big brothers, big sisters give me a real role model. And the young me needed a role model bad. My bigger brother's name is Ray. And Ray is the reason that this seven-year-old grows up to be a role model himself. Whether you donate money or time, you're helping Big Brothers Big Sisters help a child. Start something today at BigBrothersBigSisters.org. Brought to you by Big Brothers Big Sisters and the Ad Council. The full moon lights the silver rails winding around dark mountains and over steep gorges of jagged rock in one freezing cold rushing black mountain river. I wish there was enough time to describe all of the funny twists and turns that led up to now, but there isn't enough time because there's a ticking clock and the two passengers we care most about don't know anything about it. To see what happens next, visit read.gov to read The Exquisite Corpse, a riveting adventure pieced together by John Sheska, Shannon Hale, Daniel Handler, and other popular authors. Explore new worlds. Read. Brought to you by the Library of Congress and the Ad Council. Far from the din of commercial culture and just this side of the abstract is a place I call Mesoterra. I'm Vic Valverde, your tour guide for an eclectic musical excursion on a program called Mesoterra. Saturdays, 12 noon until 1.30, right here on KZUM. I'm Scott Colborn, and you're listening to Exploring Unexplained Phenomena. Please join us now for a conversation with my colleague Peter Robbins. Mr. Robbins is an investigative writer and author and he's lectured all over the world because he knows the stuff. He's been a consultant to TV programs, documentaries. For example, he was an associate producer of the award-winning documentary Travis, The True Story of Travis Walton. Highly recommended viewing, by the way. And I recently read his paper uh, that I really appreciated Politics, Religion, and Human Nature, Practical Problems and Roadblocks on the Path Toward Official UFO Acknowledgement. That was published by the Annals of the Institute for Organomic Science. He makes his home in New York when he's not traveling the world. Please welcome back our friend and colleague, Peter Robbins. Hi, Peter. How are you? I'm fine, Scott. How are you doing this morning? I'm doing great. You're an hour ahead of us, so are you having a good day so far? You can do So far, so good. Staring at my cup of coffee. Uh, weather's not bad here in central New York State, so uh, off to a good start. And Peter, Peter's an hour ahead, so he's actually doing some fortune-telling, saying that we're going to have a good day, too, because he's already <laughs> an hour ahead, and he's having a great day. <laughs> yes, uh, a practical psychic ability. <laughs> uh, so, Peter, I read uh, part of the interview that you did with Timothy Beckley 
Um, yeah. Before I ask you questions about that, what kind of a guy is Beckley? How do you, how do you know him? Tim and I go back more than 30 years. Um, for anybody not familiar w- with Timothy Green Beckley's name, he is something of a legend in UFO studies. And I have colleagues who tend to look down on him sometimes because he has been an incredibly prolific publisher over the decades, uh, publishing and republishing a wide variety of UFO literature, from classics to very sensationalistic stuff. Um, We met early on in in my involvement in the field in the later 1970s at a time when um, the punk music explosion had happened here in in New York City. And um, my sister's band was a regular at CBGB's. Uh, Tim and I became... uh, friends because we shared similar tastes in headbanging music at the time, (laughs) and because I thought he was one of the most knowledgeable and completely entertaining people um, I had ever met in the field. Um, He continues to live in New York City and publish and still be a character and Mm -hmm. uh, uh, has also a weekly radio show and um, is somebody I like very much. He's had some health challenges recently, so we send our best to Timothy Green Beckley. Yes, he has, and I'm sure that's appreciated. Uh, Peter, uh, in the summer of 1970, I visited New York City, and um, I had a paranormal experience in Central Uh Park. Wow. Um, And uh, unfortunately, uh, I've been clean and sober since 1983, but I spent a lot of the time in New York City inebriated because I was a small-town kid who'd suddenly gone to New York City and found out that if I walked in, they would serve me. So we went, we went to the Electric Circus. We went to oh my um, the Fillmore East, and for 12 bucks, wow. we saw traffic, uh, Mott the Hoople, and Fairport <laughs> Convention with Richard Thompson. Good Lord. Um, we went out to Randall's Island to a roadhouse out there, and I wow. saw somebody who looked a lot like Jeff Beck playing that night. <laughs> and we just had we had a blast. Um, oh, what fun. <laughs> Even if you don't remember some of it. <laughs> that's, that's right. That's right. My friends tell me that I had a good time out there. <laughs> it's close enough to the 60s that the mantra applies. If you remember it all, you, you really are not telling the truth. You didn't, you didn't have the fun you should have, right? No. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, you and your sister apparently had a shared UFO sighting, or some might say even a close encounter. Yes, um, we did. And um, Tim's interview uh, some years ago in, in UFO magazine, I thought, um, uh, did a great job of focusing in on, on my sister's experience Mm-hmm. and the impact that it had on my life. It's um, a story I've, I've shared numerous times, but in a nutshell, um, as children growing up uh, on Long Island, about <clears throat> 30 miles east of Manhattan in a, a lovely little village there, we had a daylight sighting that was um, completely unambiguous and profound enough to change my life uh, uh, many years later. Um, we saw <clears throat> five silvery white disc-shaped objects 
coming in at a high rate of speed, hanging over the neighbor's house for an interminably long time um, in a very precise V, as in Victor, formation, and close enough that we could uh, both agree that the surfaces of these things were metallic and that there was regular detailing around the edge of each. Uh, the shapes, by the way, were elliptical, like a dinner plate held at you know arm's length but tipped, uh, ovoid. Um, and it was, for me, uh, the most shattering experience of my very innocent, leave-it-to-beaver sophisticated 14-year-old life. <laughs> uh, for my sister, it was that and more. Um, I was so overwhelmed by it, and at 14, so aware of um, uh, the ridicule factor attached in culture. You didn't have to be a sociologist to know that grown-ups or people who took the subject of flying saucers seriously uh, were uh, made fun of, uh, as a rule. And I... I really couldn't handle it, Scott. Um, at 14, like most boys, I was a mass of hormones, just hoping to make contact with a girl sometime <laughs> in the future, yes. have cooler clothes, be a foot taller, have better hair, the usual list of things. And um, I sometimes joke with people that if I have another repressed memory from childhood, I don't remember it, but I, I put this out of my mind with... Um, high intention, in a matter of two weeks or so. How could I do it? I don't know. How do people do it in, in more conventional trauma? And trauma was the way uh, I guess I perceived it. Um, everything that I thought I knew was true was now in question. Everything mm -hmm. that I had learned from the adult world was now uh, open for reevaluation as this major untruth uh, that I had intuited was a reality. And again, let me say, these were completely round, oval, no appendages, uh, moved at a very high rate of speed, made no noise. And that memory stayed submerged for over 14 years. And when it came back, it came back one afternoon for a number of reasons. Yeah, what was uh, the trigger? Why did, it, why did it suddenly come back? I think it was a series of, of, of factors, Scott. Um, Probably the most important one was that my mind was ready to deal with this subject. But what triggered it? Um, I lived in New York City's Chinatown at the time. It was uh, years before um, Mayor Giuliani declared a uh, crackdown on fireworks um, uh, on, in the Chinese community. They had always done it in the city on the 4th of July. Uh, it's not legal in New York State. Um, but at the time, it was like living in the DMZ. It was um, uh, a 48, 72 hours of explosions um, through the night, the smell of cordite in the air replacing the Chinese food smells. <laughs> um, I didn't sleep much. Um, several weeks before that, at the suggestion of... Uh, Dr. Ellsworth F. Baker, my uh, therapist in, in the uh, therapy that Wilhelm Reich had pioneered, suggested that um, I, I might be interested in taking a human potential workshop that he had taken, which I did. And that had left me kind of open and shaken a bit. 
but maybe the the immediate trigger was sometime before this, as an artist, um, I had mentioned to uh, a former girlfriend who was a friend that my grandmother had given me some several dozen drawings that I had done in childhood that she simply had put away uh, at a time when parents didn't necessarily save their little darlings' artworks. Maybe it was because refrigerator magnets had not come into being yet. Um, but she had just done a, uh, a commercial advertising job and had a big roll of acetate left, very inventive. Uh, she suggested that I give her the drawings, that she would put each one in acetate and secure it with electrical tape. And I had uh, a week or so later these wonderful drawings back many of them quite fragile on old manila paper like they used to give us in elementary school. And I was going through them uh, on the floor of my uh, loft in Chinatown. None of them um, dealt with UFO-related subject matter. It had never interested me. Um, But some of the drawings were done at about that time in my life. And over the course of, of a very short two minutes or so, the way that the brain works, I, I, I can't explain it. Um, this memory came roaring back into my head. I mean, um, ferociously, like a tape loop. It just kept playing. Um, I couldn't get out of my head. I, my first feelings were, um, I thought I was going crazy. Um, my logical mind um, kept asking how I could have possibly forgotten the most memorable thing that I had ever seen in my life. Um, and I got quite upset, and I finally calmed down, uh, had a cup of tea, thought things out, and thought there's only one thing to do, which is I had a witness. Uh, and sister. my sister at the time was an aspiring poet living a mile or so north of me in the East Village. And I called her and at least had the forethought to say, uh, aside from that I had a memory come back from childhood that I wanted to know if she remembered or not, that I felt that if I told her what the memory was, she'd say yes or no, uh, in essence, and I would never really know. So I started to simply describe the weather, um, where we were standing at the time on the front lawn, about the time of day, and she just cut me off mid-sentence and said, stop, I know what you're talking about, and proceeded to tell me, in fact, what I had remembered, and then added uh, a sentence that changed my life even more, which was, but there's more, and I, I don't, I'm not sure you're going to like it. I think that was her phrase. Mm-hmm. This is 1975 in February, mm-hmm. uh, Chinese New Year, just immediately having passed, and um, proceeded to tell me uh, a series of very clear memories, uh, snapshots, if you will, Um, that I've now heard variations on, and you as well, probably hundreds of times in our professional lives. Um, They're archetypical. Um, Even the words that she was hearing, I have heard before from witnesses around the world, but memories of being taken aboard. Uh, A craft uh, being walked through a metal curved hallway Uh, being on a metal uh, table, being examined. Um, The term gray was still to be invented for that ubiquitous type of uh, being that is reported so often. 
and she used her 12-year-old wording for them, which was um, uh, little doctors with big heads, with big black eyes who talk to me in my head. Mm-hmm. Um, and the things, again, that they said and the descriptions that they um, uh, of the procedures, etc., um, are the stuff that abduction studies are made up of now and uh, repeated countless times in, in, in so many accounts. But at the time, I had never heard anything like this in my life. Um, as siblings, as artists, as writers, as uh, uh, colleagues, my sister and I were particularly close and good friends. And I completely excluded the possibility that she was just simply making this up. Mm-hmm. Um, that made no sense based on the person that I had known all my life. Um, and I was filled with a drive to find out what the hell had happened to her, what was the truth about the phenomena that we saw, and that's how my involvement in the subject began more than 40 years ago. Peter, I've got a question that your, your sister uh, loved you so very much. Yes. Had you also been taken aboard and she thought for myriad reasons. Don't tell him, he'll be too upset. Don't tell Peter, and he'll be better off for it. <laughs> well, um, Would, your, would that... your sister have, even if she knew it true, would she have made that judgment saying, no, Peter, they just took me, they didn't take you? It's a good question. Um, I have asked myself that repeatedly mm-hmm. uh, over the decades. And um, in introducing that part of the subject, she was just very straightforward, as she was about all things. Um, My sense is probably not. She probably would have said something happened to us. Mm -hmm. Um, The reason that, looking back on it now, I I don't feel that I was taken um, is as follows. As you know, Scott, for many years, I had the privilege of working as the assistant to an investigative writer and artist and author named Bud Hopkins. The late and great Bud Hopkins. Yeah, who um, was a dear friend for 35 years. We lost Bud mm, about six years ago, possibly seven seven years ago next month to cancer. Um, But we worked together for years, and... Bud was arguably the father of the scientific study of the abduction phenomena. And at his side, I uh, had the opportunity to meet with not dozens or a hundred, but several hundred individuals who uh, seemed to check out in all respects from every walk of life. I spent time with them in person in the studio, uh, did entry um, uh, interviews with them, was at at the witnesses, at the individual's request and at Bud's request, a witness to many, many hypnotic regressions, um, bringing these people in some cases back to these incredibly shattering and life-changing moments. Uh, More... Over the years, Bud and close colleagues like Dr. John Mack and Dr. David Jacobs um, observed a series of, um, let's call it a checklist, of 
quirky behaviors, uh, illogical in the real world fears, um, certain things that by themselves or two or three or four of them meant nothing. But if 15 or so of them checked out, then you might well have had this happen to you. Um, doing anything to avoid uh, a location could be the most beautiful piece of, you know, uh, picnic grounds in a state park. Mm-hmm. Um, but you you would never go there. Uh, absolute terror of going to the dentist. Um, a long list of, of protocols, some of them that, that made sense uh, on the surface, other ones uh, had to dig a little deeper. And in all those years and the intervening years, nothing has shaken anything loose for me. Also, um, within, I think, two years of getting involved, I underwent my first hypnotic regression to explore this possibility. And this was with an old friend who had simply um, qualified to do hypnotic regression, uh, certainly not... Um, involved in the UFO subject. Uh, Bud also regressed me and another one of my mentors, a tough, no-nonsense New York City police detective, um, specially trained in hypnotic regression for criminal investigation uh, by the NYPD, and also a crack UFO investigator, hypnotized me as well to see if we could get any more information, if more happened. And in all three hypnotic regressions, not a hint, um, and not a moment in my life in all these years where I've been seized with an ununderstandable fear or anxiety around anything to do um, with this subject. So I'm as confident as I can be that um, I was turned off or knocked out, choose your favorite phrase, and this is part of the patterning that we've seen over the decades uh, with sister, people who have these experiences. Yeah, your sister um, was taken and you were, um, you were yeah. left there immobilized. I've got yeah. uh, the top of the break here, and let me take yep. the, the announcements, Peter. Then I've got more questions. Uh, so much enjoying uh, our conversation and appreciative of you taking time from a, a, a busy schedule to be with us. I'm delighted to, Scott. Uh, this is Peter Robbins. Uh, his last name, R-O-B-B-I-N-S. You'll find Peter on Facebook, and uh, you'll probably see him showing up in video and documentaries. You'll see his papers. You might even have the pleasure and good fortune of seeing Peter speak at one of the conferences. Our main guest, Peter Robbins. With Scott and Colleen and Jim and you guys and gals, we are exploring unexplained phenomena. Settle any scar The road to vengeance always leads 
Voice of the Blues in Lincoln, Nebraska, KZUM Lincoln and KZUM HD. Support for KZUM comes from family-owned and operated Butheris Mason and Love Funeral Home at 40th and A Streets in Lincoln. Offering services that allow families to plan ahead according to personal wishes, chapel facilities to accommodate all faiths, and grief support materials for the family following a service. More information is available at 402-488-0934 and online at bmlfh.com. And... The Bourbon Theater presenting the live flamenco music and dance of Corazon de Granada on Thursday, July 19th at 8 p.m. Tickets available now at the box office and bourbontheater.com. My name is Manny Morales. I'm 45 and I coach youth football. It's still hard to believe because the high school me was a work in progress. But big brothers, big sisters give me a real role model. And the young me needed a role model back. My bigger brother's name is Ray, and Ray is the reason that this seven-year-old grows up to be a role model himself. Whether you donate money or time, you're helping Big Brothers Big Sisters help a child. Start something today at BigBrothersBigSisters.org. Brought to you by Big Brothers Big Sisters and the Ad Council. Far from the din of commercial culture and just this side of the abstract is a place I call Mesoterra. I'm Vic Valverde, your tour guide for an eclectic musical excursion on a program called Mesoterra. Saturdays, 12 noon until 1.30, right here on KZUM. That's the opening track of the new recording by Enigma called Moon. There's that owl. I'm Scott Colborne, and you're listening to Exploring Unexplained Phenomena with Colleen and Jim. Our special guest, our colleague and friend, Peter Robbins. And Peter, uh, you probably know this about my background. I, I co-founded in 1988 the Extraordinary Experiences Support Group uh, it was in 1988 that we hosted in Lincoln, Nebraska, the Mutual UFO Network International Symposium, and we were fortunate enough to have Bud Hopkins as one of the speakers at that event. Um, people were very, very interested about the topic. I founded the support group, and it continued for, for many, many years. Uh, a point I want to raise with you is that it's been my observation that there is a a prohibition against knowing that seems to happen with a number of people that have a UFO sighting and or a close encounter. This prohibition against knowing, I have reflected, could be both internally manifested as part of the psyche protection against things that are just too far out, and there could be an external mechanism that is operational. Um, and I don't know how that would be, the, the nuts and bolts of that, but it seems like it could be a combination of, of both of those, internal and external. And Scott, which, I, couldn't, I couldn't agree with you more. Um, I, <clears throat> I think that uh, let's remove... Um, uh, ourselves from the subject of UFOs per se for a moment and um, 
take a page from uh, a more conventional, if extremely tragic and all too common kind of trauma like childhood sexual abuse. Um, the mind um, has the ability uh, under certain circumstances to shut down, uh, throw a cloud over, uh, redirect attention, um, suppress information that is simply too painful or too difficult to process, either forever or until um, one is ready to or has the support one needs. Um, and at the same time, you do enough research, um, interviews, uh, live in this world long enough and study this subject up close and personal. Um, the abilities of these other intelligences, uh, I've never felt really comfortable using the term aliens per se, and um, like many of us, when I began in this field, the simple assumption was they're all from outer space, mm -hmm. um, different planets, universes, galaxies, whatever. Um, and I, I still think uh, that that is certainly true in a number of genuine, truly anomalous UFO-related events, but that we're also dealing with other possibilities, uh, being from other dimensions or what have you. It's all theoretical uh, on a certain level. Um, but to cut to the chase, yes, um, part of their technological abilities do seem to uh, um, cover the realm of telepathic communications, um, uh, presenting an alternate visual uh, if the person um, perceiving it cannot tolerate or deal with what they're actually looking at, a screen image, so to say, um, emerges in its place. Uh, to what degree it is a product of uh, <laughs> they're doing the equivalent of pushing a button mm -hmm. or the mind doing the equivalent of pushing a button or some of both, um, we're not in a position to say. But I absolutely agree with you that we have these two factors uh, to, to look at relative to this. Now, I can't, I can't prove what I'm going to say, but following what you and I have just talked about, Peter, there are thousands of people listening right now live mm. and also to the recorded program that will be available about a week from now, the archive. Mm -hmm. There are thousands of people listening that I'm going to make an intelligent guess from my background that have had a UFO sighting and or close encounter <clears throat> and they have gone through the same repression of the memory. That mm. prohibition against knowing has been active. So I'm always interested in the trigger. And for you, as an artist, as a person that is very, so very creative, it was through your art that you saw the art from that time period and that seemed to be the, the catalyst or trigger that brought the memories back for you. Well, again, I, I, I'm not in a position, uh, because I'm certainly not a mental health professional, to um, say how the combination of factors mm -hmm. were stacked to um, change the reality for me and, mm -hmm. and make it 
all become all too conscious again. Uh, but yes, that was certainly one of, of the, the aspects, no question about it. The person that, uh, um, that protests too much, <laughs> you also can wonder if maybe they've had something that they have been repressing or had a prohibition against knowing. Um, no question about it. You, uh, you have done admirable work in a field that does not have a level playing surface. And by that I mean that you have done your best with your resources, primarily out of the pocket of Peter Robbins, yep. to advance us all in our understanding of UFOs and these other sentient beings. But there have been people at times that have disrupted that rather purposely that are playing by a totally different set of, of rules. It's not a level playing service. I'm thinking of one of the guys, Philip Class. Mm. Yes, um, Philip, um, with a quick Google search, uh, you can establish that he was an editor at Aviation uh, Magazine, a totally reputable publication coming out of Washington, D.C. for many years. Um, but he was also uh, a person who lived a double life, and I'm not speaking euphemistically or romantically. Um, it's all been established through good, hard research. Um, that he was uh, the acolyte, the... Um, That's a great term. <laughs> I love that. Yeah, the um, <clears throat> protege of um, a man named Donald K. Menzel. Menzel was the original UFO debunker, and he was in a good position to make his debunking count. He was head of astronomy studies at Harvard, uh, a respected academic, um, and a respected astronomer who also just happened to be uh, a member of um, the national security apparatus of this country with a uh, security classification for decades. And... Um, when he passed, um, class took over the job of being the debunker in chief. And let's be specific about our terms here. Um, a debunker is not a skeptic. Um, we all need to be skeptics. Every regular, I could care less about UFO person and everybody who sees themselves as a contributing professional in the field. You get to a point in this work, at least I know I did some years ago, where I realized um, the extraordinary amount and variety of evidences that had been presented to me or that I had established on my own and various mm -hmm. casework um, could be taken into a court of law if courts adjudicated such things and established that, in fact, truly anomalous UFOs from places unknown under intelligent control um, is as real as the fact that, you know, we're holding phone receivers and talking to each other right now. Mm -hmm. um, however, when that happens, uh, you get to a point, I would call it, no longer having the luxury of disbelief. You then have to um, be extra careful as you move forward in your research and investigations because you, quote, know that what you're dealing with is real. So the temptation to simply accept um, the next case uh, based on its surface appearance is, is very um, um, 
natural kind of feeling. But it's the next one that could be a misinterpretation or a fabrication. So one needs to just keep applying um, rigorous rules of um, keeping your own personal bar as high as you can, uh, knowing that everybody makes mistakes, large and small. And when you do, I think in this work, and probably other fields of natural research, um, the most important thing to do is as soon as you realize, or it has been pointed to uh, your attention that you screwed up somewhere, is to uh, make a point of making that public on your own repeatedly, um, getting to the bottom of what happened, um, cleaning it up with colleagues, the research community, your readers, uh, accepting responsibility where it applies, and then moving on rather than, you know, a tough guy approach of, uh, you know, real men don't apologize, and uh, sooner or later people will forget about this, but I'm damned if I'm going to admit I made a mistake. Yeah, Philip Class uh, brought uh, Dr. Robert Baker to Lincoln in 1988. Well, another. Uh, <laughs> to challenge and to, uh, to uh, be... Uh, disruptive in in some ways, yeah. the um, the conference that we we're holding. Uh, it was Philip Class at in an earlier event that our local group was sponsoring, who approached the head of the continuing studies department and said, "Why is this land grant college in Nebraska uh, doing this sort of thing with this outlandish?" Yeah. subject that is so unbelievable that all the scientists okay. are laughing at this and why are you people exposing yourselves and risking your credibility to huh. associate with this classic uh, and so pressure was put on through one or more regents of the university of nebraska and uh this gentleman went from being ecstatic over the turnout that we'd had and the the comments from all the people, speakers and registrants, the yeah. very favorable press coverage. In two weeks, he went from that to being a person that was in fear of losing his job yep. because of the pressure and the sly manipulation that Philip Class uh, exerted. And yeah. he reached into a number of cases so that, have you ever wondered, Peter, and I'm just this is entire speculation now. Mm. Was, was he paid to do this? I would love to have a forensic accounting of his tax returns, of his bank accounts. Mm. Um, what was his motivation for doing this? Because you and I, Peter, you and I both know that he was a flat-out liar. Oh, yes. Um, uh, a, a serial liar, no question and had no compunction about it. Um, let's uh, first, again, back to the word skeptic and debunker. Mm -hmm. um, a skeptic is, is somebody who, like us, tries to get to the bottom of things, trip them up, uh, approach things with caution, circumspection, uh, establish your findings in no uncertain terms. Uh, a debunker, Bud used to joke, um, they are miraculous creatures, and um, we should all be in awe of them because they actually know the unknowable. They know for a fact 
that there is no such thing as a truly anomalous UFO. They know we're certainly not being uh, visited by um, sentient beings um, in uh, uh, conveyances of extraordinarily advanced technology. They know it for a fact. How do they know? Well, it has to do with the mantra, it can't be, therefore it isn't, therefore it's something else. And I'm going to assign myself the job of patting you, uh, uh, a person in the public, on the head, and explain to you slowly and with small words so you won't get confused what you are misinterpreting in the national world or perhaps a classified project that makes your, your fantasy life go crazy and feel that we're being visited by beings from other places. Um, the um, university, the college uh, official that you were speaking about, this is a pattern we see repeatedly in the professions, especially as they dovetail into um, the sciences or law or politics or anything where ridicule um, is not just somebody making fun of you behind your back, but it can cost you work, clients, or in fact, destroy your career. Um, I, I touch on that repeatedly in the paper that you mentioned, um, uh, Politics, Religion, and Human Nature, which you certainly have my permission to post on, on your website if you think it might interest your readers. Um, I, I don't know um, if Phil was getting you know envelopes full of cash from some clandestine government office uh, I always thought of him as my term was a useful idiot. Um, <laughs> he was driven to do this on his own because of this totally inflated view that he had of his own intelligence. Um, or, you know, who knows what the impetus was to make him dedicate his life to... Um, well, he lied repeatedly in print. Uh, certainly, um, I, I could show you the pages where he lied about me and my sister in one of his books, uh, my friend Travis Walton, and over and over. In our case, I'll give you an example. Um, he dedicated a chapter in his book, uh, UFO Abductions, A Dangerous Game, same book that he attacked, attacked Travis in. And after... Um, becoming very familiar with my and my sister's account, um, the details of it. He ended the chapter by saying that what had happened was we were two kids with big imaginations looking for attention, and not with any malice, but we made it up and then believed it. And I thought to myself two words that I can't say on the air here relative <laughs> to his take on it. Um, but, you know, um, that was standard Phil class. Um, it can't be, therefore you're a liar. Uh, with Travis, it was you're doing this for attention, you're doing it to make money, you were hiding out in a cabin in the woods, um, doing everything he could to contact everybody that had ever known this man involved in one of the most famous abduction cases and best documented ones in history. Um, early employers, friends, um, Anybody that knew him, but never, never contacting Travis himself. One of the I mean, guys that was involved in the experience with Travis Walton, I understand that Philip Class approached him and offered him thousands of dollars if he would recant his story and say that Travis was making it up. Yes, that's absolutely true. 
Um, this was the youngest member of the team, uh, particularly freaked out by the experience, as all the men who were with Travis were. Uh, it disrupted his life terribly, and he ended up relocating to another state where uh, class found him, um, you know, eking out a living and trying to deal with his own upset and, uh, you know, nightmares and essentially a variation on PTSD, and offered him $10,000 to uh, recant his story. Um, he refused to do it, um, but he sure could have used that money, and he's very articulate about that in the wonderful documentary, uh, Travis, the True Story of Travis Walton. Um, the man was a bottom feeder, and I, I have respect for colleagues who... Uh, uh, have different opinions than I do, but if you're going to be um, a liar and you're going to attack people with untruths and a complete set of unethics, um, then, you know, all the normal rules of exchange are off. And uh, Phil passed some years ago, um, and they say it's, it's not nice to speak, uh, you know, poorly of the dead. Well, Goodbye and good riddance, as far as I'm concerned. I'm sure his dog liked him, but um, I found him a very offensive uh, and a very deceptive human being. Yeah, he was a bore. Yes, the, yes, a bore is a good word. The reason... Helen, uh, my sister Helen used to refer to him as Phil Class, the man who has none. <laughs> <laughs> the, folks, uh, that you're listening to uh, our friend and colleague Peter Robbins um, lay out why this field has not been level, why there has, hasn't been a fair exchange of information. Uh, and you've got people that have, have emerged that have actively tried to disinform, to disenfranchise, to disrupt uh, any exchange of ideas, of uncovering the truth. So, ladies and gentlemen, one of the things I want you to think about is... If there's nothing to this UFO stuff, why did these people go to such great lengths to protest too much? <laughs> wow. Peter, when I come back from the bottom of the hour break, uh, help me with this pronunciation. It's a Russian case, the Voronov? Voronosh. Voronosh. So tell us about that when we come back from the break. And, you bet. And why that may be in a very important case. Indeed. This is our friend and colleague, Peter Robbins. And you'll see Peter in documentaries. You'll see Peter at conferences around the world. Um, he's one of the good guys. He's with us for another 20 minutes or so. I'm Scott Colborn with Jim and Colleen. And you kind folks out there listening... We are exploring unexplained phenomena. Hey, the voice of the blues in Lincoln, Nebraska. KZUM Lincoln and KZUM HD. Support for This Week in Lincoln comes from The Bay, The Bourbon Theater, Duffy's Tavern, and The Zoo Bar. This is live music happening this week in Lincoln. 
On Saturday, July 14th, the Nick Schneblin Band returns to town for a 6 p.m. show at the Zoo Bar, followed there at 9 by The Fay with State Disco, Pink Royal, and C.J. Clydesdale. That's what's happening this week in Lincoln. Join KZUM for the next show in our free summer concert series at Stransky Park this Thursday, July 19th at 7 p.m. with The Bottle Tops and Evan Bartles and the Stony Lonesomes with food trucks and art activities for the kids. Celebrate 15 years of free, live, and local music at Stransky Park in Lincoln this Thursday, July 19th with The Bottle Tops and Evan Bartles and the Stony Lonesomes. Brought to you with support from Dietz Music, Rabble Mill, the Lincoln Arts Council, Augstons Printing, and Brian Health. Find out more at kzum.org. The full moon lights the silver rails winding around dark mountains and over steep gorges of jagged rock and one freezing cold rushing black mountain river. I wish there was enough time to describe all of the funny twists and turns that led up to now, but there isn't enough time because there's a ticking clock and the two passengers we care most about don't know anything about it. To see what happens next, visit read.gov to read The Exquisite Corpse, a riveting adventure pieced together by John Sheska, Shannon Hale, Daniel Handler, and other popular authors. Explore new worlds. Read. Brought to you by the Library of Congress and the Ad Council. Far from the din of commercial culture and just this side of the abstract is a place I call Mesoterra. I'm Vic Valverde, your tour guide for an eclectic musical excursion on a program called Mesoterra. Saturdays, 12 noon until 1.30, right here on KZUM. Coming up in Lincoln on the 26th at the Stransky Park uh, Concert Series, my friend Levi William. And uh, if you want to hear some great blues, that's going to be a show to check out Thursday night, July 26th. I'm Scott Colborn with Colleen and Jim. Um, what do you both think so far? I'm enjoying the conversation, <laughs> especially... You know, I, I wish you guys would just get over this shyness problem you have and, and tell us what you really think. <laughs> okay. Okay. <laughs> this, 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 is, this is great. <laughs> uh, what a show. Colleen, what do you think? I think it's like, it's like a pretty um, informative show, especially like, you know, a lot of people would hesitate to bring up um, how trauma works, you know, because it is a very sensitive issue. But you know, it's like I think I think with this whole thing of where um, there's a lot of people who don't have access to mental health care, it uh, it needs to be talked about because people do need to get need to get help. Mm-hmm. You know, and I'm not just saying that it's 
that it's people experiencing things, it's people who experience traumas of all sorts. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Yeah. Peter, the, uh, the paper that I read last night was about a Russian case. Tell yeah. us more about that. Yeah, um, it, uh, it, it's called the Voronozh incident, uh, Voronozh being a city in uh, Russia, uh, about 800 miles south-southwest of Moscow. And in later September 1989, um, an event happened that, that really was uh, historic. A <clears throat> UFO touched down uh, not just in a main park in the city, but in a tree in the park, the tree very stressed out. Two beings, a very, very tall one and a very short one, seemingly more robotic, uh, made their way down the tree and started to move around the park. Dozens and dozens of witnesses observed this, uh, children as well as adults. Um, One boy um, screamed um, in shock. The larger being aimed an apparatus at the boy. I'm trying to remember... um, whether he froze or disappeared, I know he was restored before the end of the event. Uh, where the craft touched down, uh, where the beings uh, interfaced with organic material, uh, there were changes in the physiology uh, of the material. Researchers were on the case almost immediately, and it was um, released. The information was released on November 9, 1989. Um, it was historic because it didn't come as a leak from the old uh, Soviet Union, and it was still the Soviet Union at the time, but in its death throes. Um, it was an official news release from TASS, the Soviet news agency. Uh, they were the ones putting this information forward and backing it up as completely credible and real. Um, it became very personal very fast, more than just about any other major case that I had investigated in that as the story broke on television, um, I was writing in my living room in New York City, had CNN fairly, uh, we forget these round-the-clock news uh, channels are fairly new in the last couple of decades, so to say, and it was quite new at the time, but I had it on in the background. It was also uh, a time when almost everybody had a video uh, recorder, and there had been a number of documentaries on recently, and I had a half-recorded tape in the machine and realized that the CNN reporters were talking very seriously about this landing and disembarkation, and the Soviet Union slammed in the tape. And then came the quotes from TASS, and I thought, hmm, I'm on West 57th Street, the offices of the TASS news agency at the time, I don't think it exists anymore, uh, and along with the Soviet Union, we're half a mile away in, in Rockefeller Center. And um, I thought, what the hell? And I, I found their number in the phone book, cold called them, uh, tried to imitate my most grown-up self, say I was an investigative writer specialized in the uh, subject of UFOs and most curious about this breaking case, and might I come by, and much to my pleasant surprise, um, the very enthusiastic employee on the phone invited me over, and 40 minutes later, I was in the offices of TAS US uh, with all of these excited staff people around me wanting to know what I thought of it, 
departing there with original telex cables that had come right off. Um, and by another circumstance, not long after, um, a colleague in the States here, a psychotherapist, cut an introduction for me with um, one of the key researchers on the ground in Voronezh, uh, an associate professor at a college there who was um, a member of a UFO research group, like a small MUFON, uh, and working with his team in that park, doing interviews with uh, witnesses, and ultimately publishing a book. And we became friends. We corresponded through 1992, about two-plus years, uh, exchanged all sorts of information that probably would have not been possible um, had we gotten started a year or so earlier as we both agreed uh, after the fact that every envelope that we sent each other would have been uh, opened, you know, read, resealed, not gotten through, whatever, and everything that we sent each other got through just fine. Hmm. Um, the case broke a number of, of standard um, uh, patterns. Uh, the fact that the beings involved didn't look like beings that had been reported in the past. Um, the American press uh, made mincemeat of the case in any way that it could. Uh, one of the main interesting intellectual arguments against it being taken seriously was as the Soviet Union was coming apart and as individual Soviet citizens were expressing themselves more openly and Samistat um, independent publications were starting to come up and a freer exchange of information that the Soviets, who of course were godless communists, but repressing all of, you know, 70, 80 years of deeply religious uh, Russian orthodoxy, that mysticism was jumping to the surface and there was speculation about everything. And of course, we should expect such wild stories at a time like this, um, which would be funny if it wasn't so insulting and so effective. And, of course, the case, uh, as all cases, uh, went by the way after a while in the major media and was never really looked into again. Mm -hmm. uh, it has, has the professor's book uh, ever been republished in English? No, it hasn't. And um, due to a, uh, an interesting coincidence about a month ago, I had cause to check on just that. Uh, I have copies of the... Uh, the book and then an updated version of the book in Russian, which are quite charming artifacts in themselves. Um, book publishing in the Soviet Union uh, at that time mm -hmm. uh, was um, much less sophisticated than it is here in terms of binding paper, layout, you know, uh, uh, quality of, of illustrations, that kind of thing. But I, I, I prize them very much. And um, it was uh, a very moving experience also to um, link up with a colleague um, uh, as a Russian-American primarily um, and have an opportunity to build that friendship, although um, it's been many years since we've been in, in touch. Just as an aside, I wonder if Timothy Green Beckley um, might be able to do just that, to find a uh, Russian-English interpreter and to uh, obtain rights and republish that. You know, that is a great question, um, and, and Tim would be a very likely uh, person to do it. And 
I am actually making a note right now uh, to give him a call later and, among other things, find out if he's interested in pursuing that mm-hmm. in any way. Translations can be um, quite expensive to do. Um, the researcher I- I- in question, Dr. Yuri Lazotsev, um, on his own gave me um, a-, a multiple sheet printout early on, uh, right as the book was being published, of a basic compressed translation. Uh, Grammar and syntax are problematic in places, but uh, I understood it just fine um, and have done my best to report the facts as I understood them from him and other investigators uh, when I've spoken or written on the subject. Mm -hmm. Uh, This is Peter Robbins, our special friend and guest. His Facebook page, simply type in Peter Robbins, R-O-B-B-I-N-S, and it should pop right up for you. Uh, Peter, what do you think of this analogy? Um, There is a five-card stud game of poker with the world governments all around a great big table, including the United States. Mm. Five-card stud is... um, one card down and four cards up. <laughs> and across the table is now what we recognize as Russia, formerly the Soviet Union. Mm. Uh, there's a lot of bluff in poker. Yes. People talk about maintaining a poker face, not, not uh, transmitting anything through your yes. body actions, your eye movements, where you're looking. Uh, what you say, of course. Uh, I've long wondered if that down card on the Americans' side of that table would be the knowledge that, indeed, some UFOs are real, that we have some of the technology, that we're working to try to replicate that. And all the while, publicly, is the disinformation of saying, oh, UFOs are no big deal. We ended Project Blue Book in 1969. What's the chance of Russia also doing that? Could this have been a, a bluff at that game of poker? Uh, yes. Or do you think that there's something very substantial that did, didn't... In fact, I tell you what, if it was a real event and occurred, it could still be part of their, their poker game. <laughs> I, I think that um, politics, like poker... Uh, also involves a lot of bluff, and never more than we're seeing right about now in in world events. Um, I am one of those folks who, after years of trying to educate myself, um, state the obvious. Uh, Yes, the American government has knowledge of this subject that it is not letting go. Um, Denials have always been rampant. Um, uh, Rationales... um, false explanations, um, distractions. uh, And I think a lot of that is rooted in the simple fact that the UFO cover-up, which to a degree certainly is worldwide, is born in America. It started here. um, All of the, uh, the seeds for the national security state that we now live in were laid in the summer of 1947 uh, with the extraordinary um, 
attack on the truth and um, the um, propaganda campaign in our American newspapers and broadcast radio um, to make the American citizen aware that this was simply all explainable in conventional terms, and anybody who thought we were being visited by Martians, you know, was a, a silly person. Um, if we look again to the beginning of uh, the world of, of deception, cover-ups, false news that we live in, uh, I think it all begins not with nuclear secrets, but with that irritant, that little piece of sand that was Roswell, that was the Kenneth yep. Arnold crash, that was all of the government documents we see early on speculating on, are these from other places? Uh, they don't seem to be the Russians, they're not us, and we can't explain them in conventional terms. That, that calcification that builds up in, a per, in an oyster around a piece of sand to protect it from being irritated, at the middle of it is that piece of sand that the UFO cover-up that has infected and made world governments obsessed with secret keeping. It begins there. No American president, even if they could at this point, um, it's not like when Harry Truman was president and could just maybe go on the radio and say, my fellow Americans, it's my solemn duty to inform you, which Truman might just have if he had not been counseled to the contrary by the advisors who he pulled into a circle that summer to... Uh, create policy and learn more about this, that MJ-12, whatever you want to call it, enculturated itself uh, rather than led to the release of information, even if incomplete. Can you imagine what a different world we would have grown up in? Mm -hmm. uh, I don't think we can imagine. Had it simply been blurted out early on, and we'll deal with it one way or the other. Um, to be practical, um, it doesn't matter looking back on the history of the presidency uh, from Trump back to Truman, whether or not that elected leader was a Democrat or Republican, uh, a progressive, a conservative, um, leaning left, leaning right, they're all unindicted co-conspirators and the greatest cover-up in human history. Well said, and well put, well. Despite their political differences, it's a small exclusive club and um, don't count on any president to pull the plug on this. Back to your original question, um, we are at a moment in history where power is, is shifting in ways that every day seems to bring new revelations, especially um, with some of the erratic uh, hiccuping of policy that our president puts forward, even in the last few days of uh, making a statement and then taking it back the next day. Um, it's not inconceivable to me that um, uh, Mr. Putin, who is nothing if not a survivor, very cunning, very calculating, obviously smart, has consolidated power in a way that our president maybe dreams that he wishes he could, uh, and controls the show completely, that in if push comes to shove, it may just be Putin who reveals uh, the truth about this. It may be the Chinese. Uh, I wonder sometimes if it'll come in the form of an absolutely overwhelming series of uh, WikiLeaks or uh, a release like that or, or definitive high-resolution unretouched photos of uh, anomalies on the surface of the moon and Mars. It's sitting there in the wings, 
but what will trigger it, again, we can only guess. Uh, Peter Robbins, you've written uh, and lectured on a topic that uh, is uh, directly related to what we've just talked about. The paper is titled, Little Green Men and the New York Times, How America's Greatest Newspaper Helped Perpetuate America's Greatest Deception. And folks, whether you want to believe this or not, early on in the UFO cover-up, it was decided, and we've got the documents to prove that, that efforts should be made to embed major media figures in broadcast and print so as to control the flow of information. And there is ample proof. I would point people to um, the Terry Hansen book, yeah. uh, The Missing Times, uh, News Media Complicity in the UFO Cover-Up. And yeah. Peter's paper talks about the New York Times. Uh, people would say, okay, if I picked one paper that would be a bastion of truth and reporting, it would be the New York Times. And yet this very paper in the past has gone out of its way to help perpetuate the cover-up and keep the waters muddied. Yeah, um, I chose the Times to focus in on uh, because it was the newspaper I primarily grew up with. Mm -hmm. um, and in 1947, unquestionably, the most influential uh, print newspaper in the United States. If not the world. Um, yes, very well, certainly in the English-speaking world, that's for sure. Uh, although I, I don't know how it would stack up. Well, England's a smaller country, of course. Um, but what I did, um, and this is purely an intellectual exercise driven by complete curiosity, was years ago I started visiting the New York Times newspaper morgue in New York City. Uh, this is all pre-digital, and the routine was quite wonderfully arcane. You would go through uh, these ancient ledger books, huge pebble-bound books, everything cross-referenced uh, according to title. Um, and I was looking for anything from 47 on relative to aerial, unidentified aerial objects, flying saucers, um, any related terminology. I, I found out early on that uh, nothing was coming up under the terms extraterrestrial or spaceship um, because in 1947 they were each always two words, spaceship, extraterrestrial. Uh, and then you'd find the article, you'd copy down the reference number, you'd bring it to the reference librarian, she would give you the microfiche like some of us old enough to remember sure. uh, researching things in high school. You go onto the machine, you find the article, you put in your coin, you print it out. And I did that on and off for months, set aside the project for several years, came back after the Times uh, database had been digitized, continued it, and can say with confidence, I'm probably the only person you'll ever speak to who has read every single article, commentary, editorial, photo caption, letter to the editor that the New York Times has ever published on the subject of UFOs, something closing in on 250 or so separate items. 
I put them in order, and I read them, and I read them again, and I read them again, looking for a pattern on the way the, the reporting was done. And I'd say 97% of the Times reporting on this subject uh, has remained um, condescending, sarcastic, um, disinterested, uh, dismissive, uh, outright um, uh, arrogant in terms of they can't be, uh, Menzel, class, um, quoted regularly, interestingly, through certain periods of their lives. And that brings us to the whys. Um, and as you know from the paper, I, I have to speculate there, um, was the ownership, the, the publishers, the editors of the Times quietly asked to uh, set the tone for this kind of reporting? by an uh, uh, individual representing the Truman administration with uh, uh, quiet thanks on behalf of our chief executive? Um, or were they encouraged to think that, in fact, our government also felt they were nonsense and, you know, we're dealing with more important stuff this summer, uh, the Soviets consolidating themselves and making it apparent that they are our next big enemy and the Cold War coming into official beginning? And we need to stay focused here, so uh, lighten up on your coverage here. It would be appreciated. I don't know. Either possibility is, is viable. Peter, it's been uh, uh, all too long since we've last talked. And again, yeah. I want to thank you so much for, for taking time from your weekend to be with us. On my part, I've thoroughly enjoyed the conversation, and I'd like to have you always know that the door, the window, whatever it may be, is always open to you to come back again. Scott, I have enjoyed this period of time that we've been chatting uh, very much as well. It has been too long. As a, a few of your longest-term listeners know, uh, I had the pleasure of, of visiting you many years ago and, and speaking at the bookstore. I always have good thoughts about Lincoln in my heart, and I'd be pleased to return um, to the show whenever we can schedule it. Thank you, Peter. And uh, from Lincoln, Nebraska, the flatlands to New York City, we sure wish you well. Thank you, my friend. Have a great rest of the weekend. And um, do post the link once it's available in the archives on my Facebook page, and we'll figure out when we get together again. Yes, sir. And that's, that's a wrap, Jim and Colleen. <laughs> Where did the time go? Bingo. EUP, your hard-hitting paranormal show. <laughs> what a great, what a, great conversation. What a great conversation. I love it. Uh, Peter's the sort of guy that if you had uh, the uh, setting, the time, and certainly his willingness, uh, he could do this for hours and hours and not, mm -hmm. not fully touch the, uh, the knowledge that he's gained. Uh, folks, this is... Uh, one of the great reasons why we do this program is to have conversations like this with people like Peter Robbins. We sure hope that you are listening today live or to the archive. And uh, please stay curious because the world is far wilder and much more weird than we all even think. And people like Peter, in a very sophisticated and erudite manner, uh, help remind us of that. Look around you, take care of each other, stay curious, and until next week, 
on behalf of Jim, Colleen, and myself, Walk in Beauty. Nebraska, KZUM Lincoln, and KZUM HD. Join KZUM for the next show in our free summer concert series at Stransky Park this Thursday, July 19th at 7 p.m. with the Bottle Tops and Evan Bartles and the Stony Lonesomes with food trucks and art activities for the kids. Celebrate 15 years of free, live, and local music at Stransky Park in Lincoln this Thursday, July 19th with the Bottle Tops and Evan Bartles and the Stony Lonesomes. Brought to you with support from Deets Music, OMT One More Time, Lefty's Records, and Big Red Worms. Find out more at kzum.org.
Welcome to El Lugar, where the people are fain, they, they feign commerciality, and they feel lugubre towards the abstract. This localidad comes with the name Mesoterra. Mi nombre is Vic Valverde, your host and tour guide to the sights and sounds find, that you can find along the road of the musical spectrum. We kicked off today's show with a band who met and formed in Boston, Massachusetts. Black Francis, Dave Loverding, Joey Santiago, and Kim Deal, the Pixies, from their 1989 album, Do Little. We heard Monkey Gone to Heaven. I've been trying to figure out if that song is either highly theological or nonsensical. I'll leave that decision up to you. Anyway, I got a lot of music to play today, and I'm going to get rolling with a band out of Tampa, Florida, one of the best of the 70s Southern rock bands. No, it's not who you think. It's the Outlaws, one of my favorite tunes by them from 1977. And it's called Hurry Sundown. 